Welcome to Why Health, a podcast brought to you by the BYU Public Health Department. I'm Dr. Cougar Hall, a professor here at Brigham Young University. Whether you are a student, parent, or BYU fan, this podcast will help you navigate the world of public health. Our podcast strives to help individuals receive accurate information regarding public health. So whether it's global or local, we will discuss how it pertains to you. Just kick back and relax as we talk about Why Health. Scott Harrod, thank you for joining us today on the Why Health podcast. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much, Cougar. I appreciate uh, you inviting me to be on this podcast. You are the first student, actually former student now. You just graduated about a month ago, so congratulations on that. But the first student we've had on the podcast, and I think I'm more excited about this conversation than anyone we've had so far. Well, thank you. That's really nice. You've had a really busy summer, and I want to get to all of that. But would you mind just introducing yourself first, a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and why you're here, right? Yeah, great. So my name is Scott Herod. I recently graduated in public health health science and international development. I am very interested in global health. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why I'm here is to talk about my experiences in academic global medicine. I'm married. I've been married for three years. And I'm the oldest of seven kids. So I've, I've got a blended family, my mom and then my stepdad and then a bunch of siblings. So at one point, there were actually five of us here up at BYU. And that was that was definitely a good time. Wow, that's really cool. Okay, where did the Herods reign from? Where's home? So I'm from San Clemente, California. Um, so that's South Orange County. Very cool. Love it. Tell me why you chose public health, why you chose health science. Yeah. So originally, when I first got to BYU, I declared my major as athletic training, and then I ended up shifting to exercise science. I was really interested in sports. And then I served my mission in Ghana, and that really opened my eyes to global health inequity. And, you know, I had people on my mission who I knew who died in childbirth. I saw a lot of um, poverty and how that impacted health. And I knew when I came home that I didn't want my career to only be helping athletes get back to a sport, but to help people who are underprivileged or underserved access um, healthcare and ultimately become healthy like people that are wealthy can be healthy. And that kind of sparked me to be interested in, in public health. And so I ended up switching my major, switched to public health, health science, because I knew that that was you know a good route to medical school, as well as to give me a population mindset to medicine, which I think is really important. So that's ultimately why I chose public health and then also international development. I don't know if all our listeners are familiar with the missionary program for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I know that even those that are may or may not know where Ghana is on a map. If you don't mind, will you just tell us a little bit about a mission experience and about Ghana in particular? Is that okay? Yeah, definitely. So Ghana is in West Africa. Uh, it's actually one of the more wealthy and developed countries in West Africa. It's got a, a pretty good medical um, system or healthcare system. But I served from 2016 to 2018. And I guess one experience I can share, uh, you know, I, I alluded to, you know, a friend that I knew that died in childbirth. And when I first got to Ghana, I worked in this this area that, you know, was a little bit outside of the main city, Accra. And there was a friend that we had made as we were working within these communities, because as a missionary, you get to know, you know, most people in communities. And we made this friend who owned this baking shop and we passed by frequently and, and it, she was an expecting expecting mother and every time we'd walk past this shop, she would, you know, say, welcome, my friends, welcome. It's good to see you. And we'd get this pastry from her. 
you know, my, my companion and I, we enjoyed getting to know this, this woman and she wasn't a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we still, you know, valued that friendship. And one day after several weeks of this, we stopped by and she wasn't there and we didn't really think anything of it. Um, you know, we knew she was expecting, she, we knew she was probably due any day. And one of the workers at the, at the bakery stopped us and said, do you know where your friend is? And we knew she was alluding to this woman. And we said, no, we don't. Where is she? And she said, oh, she died last night. She died in childbirth. And I remember that was kind of the first time I realized, like, I'm not in the United States anymore. And I'm, you know, in West Africa where, you know, health is, is not guaranteed for all and healthcare isn't guaranteed for all. And, you know, I started to question, you know, why, you know, she didn't have any choice to be born in Ghana. Why did she pass away in childbirth, whereas I know many people in the U.S. who are much more privileged and are able to get care when they have a complication. And I didn't know if she didn't go seek care or if it was inadequate care. But that really kind of sat with me throughout my two years, as well as additional experiences that I had. And that's when I came home, I realized that I wanted to make a difference in some way. Um, and I've learned a lot along my journey of what does it look like for me to have an impact in global health and you know, what is sustainable, what is helpful, what isn't. But that's kind of was one of those pivotal experiences for me in being interested in global medicine. Yeah, I would think so. I can, what an, what an impact that would have had on you. You and I met, I think, in an introduction to public health class and right before uh, the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. In fact, I think this will go down as like one of the dumbest things I ever said, but I don't know if you remember this. In class, I think I shared, you know, public health in the news. And it was an article, I think, from Dr. Fauci or, or it had a lot of good quotes from him. And this was likely the first week in February, right, of that year. And I think I remember standing up and saying, well, if this ever came to the U.S., we'd take care of this in about two weeks because our public health infrastructure, we, we got this taken care of. And, oh, that has haunted me so many times over the past couple of years. But I think that's when we met. And then we had just a, a brief conversation in my office about working together and in a project that you were really passionate about. And I really think it's something that came from an experience that you had in Ghana. So tell me about the project, and then what led to what's called a CURA, or a College Undergraduate Research Award here in the College of Life Sciences. Do you mind talking about that? Sure. Yeah, so I uh, had worked with Randy Page on going on a global health internship with Unite for Sight, which uh, is an organization led by ophthalmologists in Ghana to perform cataract surgery for um, those that are in poverty in different villages around, around Ghana. Okay, and, time out, Scott. What are cataracts and why is it an issue in Ghana? So cataracts is when the lens of the eye becomes clouded and it prevents people to be able to see. And specifically in low-income countries like Ghana, they don't have access to surgery and so they can become blind and has a lot of detrimental impact on, on their health and on their family's economic status and their children's educational attainment. And so it's easily treatable with a quick surgery where you know it can take 10 minutes or less, where the lens is replaced with a synthetic lens so that they're able to see. And so the purpose of my time with Unite for Sight was going to be you know, assisting these local physicians in providing care for these patients, but most importantly, also conducting a research project, which is when I first met you, we had talked about possibly doing a study where we interviewed patients and assessed barriers to cataract surgery in Ghana so that Unite for Sight could innovate and customize their services to reach those that are the hardest to reach. And so that was kind of the basis of our project. We worked 
on that for several months. We even completed an IRB application and got approval. And then, like you said, the pandemic came and that got shut down. So my wife and I were not able to travel to Ghana, unfortunately. But luckily, I, I met a man named Dr. John Welling, who works with the Himalayan Cataract Project and was also starting up Daybreak Vision Project, which is in collaboration with, with ophthalmologists in Ghana to basically do the same thing that Unite for Sight is doing. And we were able to, to develop a new study that was very similar, but instead of surveying patients, we surveyed ophthalmologists in Ghana and Ethiopia and Zambia. And so we got IRB approval and you know, implemented the survey. And now we've done analysis and we're just writing up that paper. That's really exciting. And I'm really anxious to ask about uh, your findings and, of course, your recent trip to Ghana because you've just gotten back, what, a week ago? Yeah. Before I go there, though, you know, research is much more challenging than most of us think. You know, oh, this will be nice and quick and smooth and we'll get through this. I think it's really impressive, Scott, that you have been the team lead on this research project. I've had many research assistants, but I don't know if I've ever had anyone that was uh, – as prepared and as focused and as driven as you. And yet you had a lot of help along the way as well. You've worked with some amazing people at really prestigious institutions. Maybe talk about some of the people that influenced you along the way, and then let's get to your data and your findings. Is that okay? Yeah, that'd be great. So I would say what really set me off on the career of wanting to do academic medicine is I had an internship with the Stop Infant Blindness in Africa Task Force. It's part of the International Pediatric Ophthalmology and Strabismus Council. It's this international uh, network of ophthalmologists from all around the world. And I worked with a mentor from Stanford named Dr. Scott Lambert on, on this project with this task force to prevent uh, this specific cause of infant blindness in Africa called retinopathy of prematurity. And as part of that project, I helped establish training centers in Africa. I networked with a lot of doctors in Africa. Uh, and we did two studies on what was contributing to this infant blindness, as well as you know, how many infants are going blind in Africa because of this condition. And I received a lot of mentorship from Dr. Scott Lambert and also his colleague, Dr. Sherwin Eisenberg at UCLA, uh, where I learned a lot about how to conduct research, how to get IRB approval, how to ensure that, you know, you do data analysis. Uh, I think I also really opened my eyes to the fact that not only as a doctor do I want to help provide care for patients, but that through research, you can really impact thousands of other people by moving your field forward, by helping understand barriers to care. And I really, it really solidified my interest in integrating public health and medicine, as well as pursuing academics. So I'd say definitely Dr. Scott Lambert is one of my mentors that's really been helpful in preparing me to do research as well. That's really cool. It's possible that we'll have some public health students listening to this, Scott. That would be cool, wouldn't it? Do you have some advice? You, you've just rattled off three or four different organizations and some top you know, academic physicians in the country, and you were an undergrad. How should undergrads proceed to have some of those experiences so that they can be where you are? So I'd say one of the biggest things is looking to network constantly. I tried for a lot of different opportunities and didn't get some and got some others. And I think that it's important to just put yourself out there. Once you've identified what you're passionate about, to look for opportunities along those lines and just apply to everything that you can, anything that the public health department offers, anything outside of BYU that is offered, 
I was fortunate with that internship that there were some phys- recent physicians who had, who had just completed training who were starting up some internships with some prestigious physicians at different universities. And that's kind of how I got connected to Dr. Lambert. But looking for those opportunities and then not being afraid just to put yourself out there. And you're, you got to recognize that some opportunities you'll get and others you won't. But as you get more and more opportunities, it starts to snowball where, you know, you have one internship, you're able to get a good letter of recommendation from that and it helps you get the next one. And you're able to pivot through each opportunity to decide what are you really passionate about? What do you really want to pursue? So I, I guess if, if I could boil it down to one thing, it'd be put yourself out there and apply to everything. Yeah, you've done a great job with that. So tell us about what you found with your study. You've just returned from Ghana. You've collected some data. Tell us about that. Yeah, so after my internship at Stanford, I got connected to um, another mentor of mine, Dr. John Welling, who started Daybreak Vision Project and works with Himalayan Cataract Project. And so he helped network Cougar and I to some ophthalmologists in Africa so that we could you know, get their input on a study, on a survey to assess what impacts productivity of, you know, their surgical productivity, as well as what do they perceive as barriers to care in in their respective countries for cataract surgery. And so Cougar and I, we designed this, you know, electronic survey through Qualtrics, which we sent out to hundreds of physicians. And they've responded over the last few months. And we just recently completed analysis with, with Dr. Ben Crookston. And I guess some of the most important findings that we found is that a lot of them start off their careers in the government hospitals. And the government hospitals are what provide care for the most impoverished within those countries. That's where many of them access access care. There's government insurance that many people in Ghana, at least, can use at government public hospitals. But interestingly, the surgeons responded that they weren't as incentivized in government hospitals to be as productive as possible, and they actually preferred to be in private practice. That was and actually all of the countries was hands down the most preferred practice setting was private practice. And that's likely because very wealthy patients are able to seek care that they might have private insurance or they can pay out of pocket. And so it's more lucrative for these ophthalmologists, which is you know, completely understandable that they have their own families. They want to make sure that they can provide for, for their families. But at the same time, that means that you have this drift from ophthalmologists in Africa working in government hospitals to wanting to work in private settings which bars many of the most poor patients from accessing care. And so I think that finding is really important to for governments to look at and you know think about how can we change our services to better incentivize people to work for us so that we can provide care for the most impoverished. It also helps organizations like Daybreak Vision Project and Himalayan Cataract Project as well as local providers know, you know, what can they be doing or what could they be advocating for to make sustainable change. You know, there's there's a lot of research that we do, and uh, I'm I'm going to talk about my my experience. I think a lot of the papers I've written, I don't know if anyone ever read them, including me. Maybe my parents did, right? Uh, there, but there's there's research like what you've just done that I think is really meaningful and has the ability to change the lives of individuals. I don't know if everyone quite understands just how impactful it is when in a in a family in the developing world an adult, in particular a, a breadwinner, the, you know, the individual who provides for the family, loses his or her sight. Uh, I think you've experienced that. And maybe that's one of the things that has really been a motivator for you during this whole project. So while I was in Ghana, I often saw blind elderly individuals being guided around town begging for money by children. And this was often during the school week where 
those children should be in school. They should be gaining an education. That'll not only help their family or their, their selves, but also their family. But instead, they're stuck caring for grandma or grandpa, you know, to try to get some sort of money or to care for them. And that definitely really impacted me while I was in Ghana. I saw that firsthand and I, I didn't know that there was anything I could do about it at that point, but it definitely stuck with me. And I realized that, you know, blindness does not only impact the individual who's blind. That elderly person, obviously they have worse health outcomes. They can have mental health challenges because they're not able to see, they're not able to interact with people how they used to. But at the same time, it also impacts families where these children aren't able to go to school. Their economic productivity will decrease ultimately in their life because they can't get a good job. And it on, it honestly, can there's this, this perpetual cycle where blindness and poverty are interconnected, where one contributes to the other. Those who are poor can't access services to get care, but also if you're blind, you become more poor as well. And so that really drew me to ophthalmology. And just a few weeks ago, I was in Ghana working with Daybreak Vision Project, and I got to see firsthand the impact that cataract surgery, a very simple procedure, can have on the quality of life of the individual, but also their family. Um, and just a little bit of background. So cataract surgery can be done in like 10 to 15 minutes by an experienced surgeon. There's very low risk of infection. And these high-volume cataract outreaches are, are what is very commonplace in in global eye health, where this last week, 667 patients were screened in different villages by local clinical teams and brought to a hospital where surgeries were performed by experienced surgeons. And the total cost, including food, travel to get to the hospital, the surgery, all of the equipment, the consumables that are used is around like $75 per patient. So it's very inexpensive for a surgery. Um, It's just helping these people access care. And this last week, there was this woman named Equia, who was a single mom, wasn't married, had five children. Her oldest was 19 or 20, and her youngest was only just a few months old, if not maybe a year old. And she was bilaterally blind from cataracts, and she could she had very, very minimal vision. And so we went to her home before surgery and saw what her life was like because she was blind and she showed how she's not able to wash her clothes because she can't see if the clothes are dirty or clean. She sh- talked about how when she needs to change her baby's diaper, which by the fact she's, she's actually never seen her baby before because she can't, she can't see. Um, but she talked about how when she changes her diaper, she can't see if it's dirty. She has to feel because she cannot tell. So something as simple as changing a diaper was really difficult for her. And she she just sobbed as we were there before she got surgery, just talking about how difficult it's been to be a mom of five children bilaterally blind from cataracts. And her 14-year-old daughter was there as well. And her 14-year-old daughter had to drop out of school to care for this baby, as well as to help her mom with household responsibilities, as well as helping provide a living for their family. And so obviously her educational attainment was, was decreased. And... Again, this mother was just, you know, sobbing, and it was really, really heartbreaking to see. Flash forward a few days later, she gets surgery. The surgeons didn't know if it would work. There were some other complications that may impact her vision beyond cataracts, but we all prayed for the best. And the next morning when they removed the patches to see if she could see, they did some eye exams. She, As soon as the patches were removed, she just jumped up and just started yelling and was so excited and so happy. Her 14-year-old daughter was just sobbing next to her. I think she knew what that meant, not only for her mom, but for her and her life as well. And then one of the first things that the mom did is just called for 
uh, her baby because she wanted to see her baby for the first time. And so they brought her her baby and she just was, I can't even express how excited she was. It was really moving to see. And then we also went back to her her village into her home a few days after to see what her life was like different. And she showed us how she could now wash her clothes, how her daughter was going to start school on Monday. And just to see that kind of impact in such a simple procedure that can be done by local clinical teams, I think was really impactful to me and really opened my eyes to the impact that, that I care in low income countries can, can have on people. Scott, that is the most incredible story I've ever heard. What an, what an experience. I can't even fill my car with gas in June of 2022 for $75. And the impact, that's life changing. It's actually going to impact generations of that family. It's pretty, it was pretty incredible to see. I'd read about it in textbooks. I learned about it in, in different things that I've done, but to see it firsthand was really, really moving. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think I have a little bit of a glimpse now of what motivates you and why you're so excited moving forward. So you just graduated in April from BYU. What are your, what's next? What are your plans? Yeah. So I recently applied to medical school and had a few different options and um, was fortunate to get into Harvard Medical School. So I'll be attending that the, the upcoming four years. I also plan to get my master's of public health as well, whether that's at the Chan School or the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I definitely want to blend public health and medicine as much as possible. But what really drew me to Harvard Medical School is my interest in global health. They definitely are considered um, a front runner in sustainable global health. And one of the biggest things that I've learned in my public health classes and in my international development classes is the importance of empowering providers and leaders in low-income countries to really lead out in efforts to care. And really my job coming from a place like the United States is to really just support them and how they want to be supported. And Harvard has not always had that mindset, but recently, uh, you know, with the work of people like Dr. Paul Farmer and other people at Harvard, they've really emphasized the, the importance of letting local providers and public health specialists lead out and that we're really just there for support and how they want it. And I really love that mindset about Harvard. They call it decolonizing global health. And that's kind of my, my path is I want to get my medical degree and MPH and then become an academic ophthalmologist helping support colleagues in low-income countries like Ghana. I, I really appreciate you adding that. I think it, public health has a history of kind of parachuting in and being the saviors on the ground and providing all of the care that's needed. But that, that shift, and people like Paul Farmer really have let out in that shift, and let's build their capacity. Let's, let's do it the way that they want to do it, but we'll, we'll provide that technical assistance. And, and really, when you leave, they're stronger, they're more prepared, and they're better equipped to take care of their own challenges. And, and I know that the foundations that you're working with, they absolutely have that mindset. And I will, I will absolutely leave, uh, you know, in the description for this particular conversation, some contacts, you know, some links for the foundations you've been working with. I do have to say congratulations. Uh, BYU does a terrific job of preparing undergraduate students. And our students, they do go forth to serve. And they land in some of the most prestigious graduate programs, professional programs around the country. I've never had a research assistant at BYU that landed at Harvard Med. So, Scott, you're, you're being humble. That's really cool. Really exciting. Thank you. Have you been to Boston yet? Have you found an apartment? What are you doing here? Yep, we found an apartment. We're going to be right by the Red Sox Stadium. It'll be a, you know easy 10-minute walk for me and a 10-minute subway ride for my wife to her work as well. 
we head out this just in two, three days. So we're excited for the adventure. So exciting. And your plan then with the MPH and the MD, is it is it clinical practice? Is it a combination of academic medicine? What what do you I mean obviously things may may unfold as you as you go through this experience, but what are your plans now? Yeah, so I'll definitely have an open mind, but right now I'm interested in doing about 50% clinical work and 50% uh, research and working with, with colleagues around the world. Really cool. Really cool. Scott Herod, thank you for joining us on Why Health, and I wish you all the best, my friend. I hope that we can keep in contact and uh, stay friends and that when I travel to Boston, you can give me a place to lay my head. Does that sound good? Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All the best, my friend. Thank you for joining us today. Catch us on our next episode, and don't forget to subscribe to future Why Health episodes.